Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm here today with Aiden Larkin, and Aiden is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Asset Reality, one of the the most interesting companies in our portfolio, one of the most fascinating people that I have the privilege of talking to. Um, Aiden, thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, uh, before we jump in on the company that you've spent the last um, couple of years building and, and scaling across the world, you have such a unique background in in sort of where you've come from, where you grew up. I know um, growing up in Belfast in Northern Ireland, sort of the the backstory of, of where you came from and some of the the things that you saw growing up that's, you know, over the course of your life brought you to build asset reality. Yeah, for, for me, it was it was always about wanting to try and affect change. Um, I, I grew up in Belfast. I grew up sort of in the middle of the Troubles, which which many people will know, a terrible time of uh, sort of a lot of conflict and then all the, the cliched sort of bombs and guns and, and people people dying. And, but when you're in it, you have no perspective of like, that's normal. I mean, that's you know, seeing tanks and seeing people in full sort of army regalia and guns at the bottom of your street was just a normal thing. And it was only when... You sort of stepped out of it. You're like, well, that's that, that's not what everyone else sort of has um, growing up. But I, I couldn't say that I had bad experiences growing up, as in a gay perspective. I had a really nice community around me and sort of a wonderful family. So it was only as I started to get older um, and I, I wanted to sort of get involved in that, in that world. And I was working in, in criminal investigation and in revenue and customs. I think I got my first glimpse really early um, of like the horrific inefficiencies in government, across public sector, and in, in particular in this world of asset recovery, which most people don't know what asset recovery means. It's so ill-defined around the world. And basically, it's it's getting the money back that belongs to us, whether that is society, whether that's a victim of crime, whether that's someone having their MetaMask wallet scammed, or it's a, a government that's lost all of their assets because of a corrupt dictator. And when you start to work in that environment and you realize that there is literally billions and billions of dollars not being recovered because of disparate analog broken systems, lack of direction, tons of different reasons. It just doesn't work. And when you're then, I think my background was unique enough for me to realize that literally like a small community project getting a couple of thousand pounds in funding can literally save someone's life. I've had young friends growing up who tragically sort of succumbed to their circumstances and committed suicide. I was lucky enough that I was able to get picked on this charity project when I was 11 to go to America for nine weeks and like get out of the conflict zone and sort of see the white picket fences of Long Island. And it just made me realize I was a name out of a hat. It was like this like dystopian Hunger Games, like winning this prize. And I get to sort of run off and go to America for, for sort of 10 weeks. And But then I, as I got older, I started thinking, well, why couldn't we fund everybody to go and how different could people's lives have been? And as I've got older and went through my career of working in criminal investigation, working in asset recovery and insolvency, working in seized assets, and then most recently actually being the person that manages seized assets, I've sort of seen the life cycle of, of sort of asset recovery and it's fascinated me. And you then see it at, at an international level in the sort of work I was doing with the United Nations. You got to see then that this is broken all around the world. 
and nobody's trying to fix it because it, it's ill-defined and people don't know. And then crypto came along and all of a sudden there was this blueprint that you could actually recover these assets faster. You could manage them easier. And I was like, well, if we can capture that enthusiasm and we can start to sort of show the art of the possible. And there's all of these people that know how to fix it, but they've never been herded together. I just, it got me thinking that if I could sort of create a company and bring together people, like how noble would it be to actually, like we want to put a billion dollars back in, in these communities over the next sort of couple of years. Like it seems like a sort of a, a lofty goal, but when you realize that 1% of criminal seized assets is recovered globally, like 1%, there's 99 out there for us to go after. I think if we could move the needle and have a, a really meaningful impact very, very quickly. So that, that was always the thing that, that drives me, knowing that we could have a very, very tangible impact and put money back into the, the various pots around the world. So, so in short, it's um, basically through asset reality, you guys are looking at this longstanding problem that's a perennial and, and always around sort of the misappropriation of, of funds, the, uh, the corruption that exists in the world where um, assets, whether they're physical, hard, tangible assets um, that disappear like a ship going missing um, on the dark seas, but more in the more recent future, sort of the rise of, of digital assets. So these would be things like um, obviously Bitcoin, but the, the proliferation of a number of these different uh, digital assets that have a store of value. So when there is uh, a seizure of sorts, uh, whether it's a drug bust or a government right. seizure of, of a set of assets. Oftentimes, you're saying these assets include not just hard assets, not just um, a drug bust, but sometimes they might include a Ledger Nano with um, 10 forms of cryptocurrency on it. And what does that group do with it, whether it's Scotland Yard or the UN or a, a law enforcement group from a particular country? Is that kind but, of... But, but precisely. It's If you imagine, the, the, the industry is just missing infrastructure. So there's no, uh, there's no Salesforce. There's no HubSpot. It's like for our world, everyone still uses spreadsheets. So let's imagine the you know, NYPD investigate a criminal and they seize their assets and they seize like SBF. Let's just say, you know, someone who's very clearly going to have a lot of his assets seized. Assets seized. And the whole point is there's victims, whether that's investors, whether that's the government, that that money is getting taken off the person who does something wrong. And the processes, when you actually lay them all out, are just very, very analog. Um, the court processes. Now, we're not going to change legislation overnight. We're not going to change any of those things. So when we look at this uh, asset recovery topic, it's like, well, what, what bits can we fix? And when you realize you've got this like contrast between with digital assets coming along, and remember, an asset forfeiture, an asset recovery, doesn't matter if it's a Lamborghini or a Bitcoin. It's an asset that can be recovered. It's a store of value. So when we talk about crypto, we're, we are fortunate that we get to simplify it. It's just an asset category. And in the same way, a gold bar can be in a safe, a Bitcoin could be with the custodian, or it could be on a ledger. It's just an asset that's be recovered. But I noticed over the last couple of years, you had this like rise of these incredible blockchain analytic tools, like this highly forensic digital sort of intuitive tool. And then they find the asset and then the officer you know, gets out an Excel spreadsheet or they you know, buy on Amazon, literally go onto Amazon and buy a ledger wallet. Have you imagined doing that at scale around the world, the hours that are wasted? So we just thought if we can help speed up the process that when someone uses an analytic tool and we can make the recovery, managing those assets, tracking them, auditing them, manage that process and just bring in and basically instead of having bundles of paper and Excel spreadsheets everywhere, use all of the inherent qualities of the blockchain, like on-chain monitoring. There's a ton of just efficiencies that can be gathered. I think if we were to simplify it, 
we're taking processes that take days and weeks and turning them into you know, hours and minutes effectively and alleviating a lot of risk uh, and creating a lot more transparency. But ultimately, we're, we're trying to kill the spreadsheets that they live on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the probably the, the more famous uh, seizures that people might remember from recent recent memory was, you know, the failure of the Silk Road um, and then the sort of uh, collection of, of Bitcoin that was um, missing from from that platform that was then uh, seized by the U.S. Marshall Service and auctioned um, to, I believe, uh, Tim Draper bought sort of a few hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin at the time, yeah. probably did quite he did well, well for himself. But I imagine one of the other uh, principles or things that um, might be an issue is sort of the divisibility of these assets on the back end, right? So you, you mentioned um, a Lamborghini. Obviously, if there's one sort of aggrieved party that returns return to one person, but if in the in the form of Bitcoin or in the form of something else, the divisibility and sort of the auctioning process or this process of returning those those assets to somebody else um, is it seems like also an area that's ripe for for innovation. I would imagine. It, it absolutely is, and I think it's it's about taking all of those like inherent sort of you know technological traits that exist with digital assets. Like there's so many things that uh, if we use that example of the Lamborghini, a thing that plagues asset recovery is criminals buying back their assets, or you no know, criminals using third parties. Look, lots of uh, it's in the it's in the U.S. risk assessment. Um, the the country's national risk assessment was sanctions evasion involving art. So we've seen it, we've talked, and we, we see on LinkedIn all the time, all the good work analytic companies do around sanction screening, free tools uh, off the back of the sort of Ukraine invasion. And we see all of these sanction screening. And I'm so always zooming out from an asset recovery point of view going, what about the art market? What about luxury goods? What about, now I'm not going to solve that. That's not what asset reality is built to do. Um, that's biting a bit, a bit off the more that we can chew. But when we think about blockchain, well, if I auction or I convert a Bitcoin, I now have the possibility that I can use the analytic tools to do know your uh, know your customer and know your transaction. I can then actively monitor the address that I send those assets to in perpetuity. Like being able to flag, if you buy this from a government auction, we can watch it forever. It flushes out bad actors. So there's a lot of opportunities that didn't exist in regular assets. And as a, as a side note and an interesting note, the person that actually sold those assets in Silk Road is one of my colleagues. So um, we, we are being very fortunate that a couple of uh, the folks from the U.S. Marshals have joined Asset Reality and a uh, shout out to Joanna Summer. She actually sold those assets to, wow. to Mr. Wow. Drifter. So I was also the world's first seized Bitcoin auctioneer. So while she was doing this in the U.S., I was doing it in the U.K. and I sold Bitcoin at $3,000 of Bitcoin. So and auctioneers aren't allowed to buy it. So, so I, there's, my, I, there's my great regret. I, I love that um, we, could, we could go down the rabbit hole of talking about your life as an auctioneer or uh, <laughs> on... Uh, the sort of uh, criminal tax inspe- investigation uh, with the UN. It, it was, it's, it's just all the asset recovery life cycle. I've done the legislation, but I've done the seized asset, but I've been on the warrant seizing the asset. I've interviewed the criminals in prison. I've done, I've done that life cycle, but they've all, it's been like the most fun paid R&D project I could do. And that's why like, I'm talking to you here from Jamaica. I've just been with the Minister of Finance yesterday at a, a national presentation. And I can, I can talk with enthusiasm, but also realism about like, I've lived and breathed all of these these problems. I don't consider myself an old guy, even though I, I turned forty two weeks ago. But like, all I've done with my entire adult life is is asset recovery, and every virtue of it. From when I was twenty, I've been I've been working in this sector, and it's the stuff I nerd out on. But if I'm not working on it, I'm listening to podcasts about it, I'm reading books about it, because it just, it just fascinates me. The reason you pay more tax is directly inherently linked to the performance 
of the, the, the public purse, as we call it, the money coming back in. The reason schools and hospitals are built in other countries is directly linked to the amount of money that goes back in. And then you've got this criminal disruption piece as well. If you're a MetaMask user or you're a Phantom user and you lose your assets, well, everyone has this assumption that because it's digital assets, it's the system's great, then I can get my assets back. And this is literally where the name asset reality comes from. We were always that company saying, you've lost your assets, that you've clicked on a link you shouldn't have, or you've been, you've been fished, you've been hacked, whatever the circumstances might be. But if you turn up to the NYPD and say, my Rolex was stolen in Times Square and it's a $30,000 watch, do you really think they're going to jump the desk and hit the blues and go after the criminal? And there's a real, there's a sad sort of messaging that we're almost responsible for with victims of, of sort of um, digital asset theft, having to say, you're joining the CMQ with the person that was burgled last night, with the person that got their watch stolen and their handbag stolen. And just because it's on the blockchain doesn't mean the broken asset recovery infrastructure and legislation you're still in the pot. So this is why we, if we can go upstream and we can enable government agencies, law enforcement practitioners, law firms, asset recovery practitioners, if we can build the plumbing and the infrastructure for better asset recovery, victims shouldn't have to pay a forensic accountant and a report to get their assets back. They should just be able to report it to the local police and the police get their assets back. Like that's our nirvana where we're searching for. And there's some green shoots of this happening already. I have to mention Aaron West and Santa Clara prosecutor is just doing incredible work for victims of, of crypto asset recovery, and um, but we, we just don't have enough errands. We don't have enough. No. Uh, we don't have enough of those all around the world, and it's postcode lotteries for people. So that that's sort of what um, that's what sort of really drives us. It's the art of possible in digital assets. Like this can be fixed very very quickly. Wider asset recovery is a much longer thing, but digital asset recovery can be fixed. Yeah, you know, as we think about the the arc of 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 cryptocurrencies and digital assets over the last, you know, decade, decade and a half almost. Um, you know, as somebody who's been in the thick of it for so long, um, what have you seen sort of the evolution? You know, I was I was talking earlier today about, you know, not sort of getting the early memo of uh of of speaking with one of the founders of Kraken back in 2012, 2013, not being able to fully wrap my head around uh, what the business was and passing on the investments. You know, looking at Coinbase in 2014, 2015, um, seeing the rise and fall of ICO market in 2017, sort of consensus and the you know the the advent of Ethereum and sort of secondary and tertiary chains that started to compete with with Bitcoin. Um, but but as you've sort of like been in this market and and watched the evolution through you know the, one of the most recent uh, sagas of SPF and and the FTX downfall. Where are we in that cycle and, and what do you see um, kind of moving forward and what are the ways in which um, asset reality can kind of play a role, not just in recovery, but maybe in prediction or or stopping some of these things from happening in the future? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great question because I think we have to really give a, a huge mention to, to, to US law enforcement and like the international partners. When you're from an asset recovery background and you know how long these things take, like that normally, if that had have taken 18 months, I mean, that would have been reasonable timetable. Like the Madoff sort of famous Ponzi scheme, like they literally circulated that case for two or three years before they could get activity. So what has happened in that case is nothing short of extraordinary. That is light speed by uh, asset recovery terms from the initial sort of the balloons going up and people knowing something was wrong to people actually being arrested and people appointed and receivers and like a formal process starting. 
So that for me is the really exciting bit about digital assets. We're seeing now that, again, I keep, I literally had a slide yesterday with a picture of Madoff and a picture of SBF. They actually look alarmingly like. Um, if you imagine, you know, something happens in the regular world, analytics is bank statement, analysis, international request to a foreign bank account. Three to six months later, bank statements back in, see another thread, another bank statement, another bank account. It takes years to build the case. I've, I've worked in that, in that sector. So with digital asset cases involving the blockchain, just having that ability to analyze a transparent decentralized ledger, even if you can't track and trace the assets, you've got the evidence. And I think a lot of people don't realize why blockchain analytics is so important and sort of excites me because if, if they're the... the if they're the metal detectors, we're the picks and shovels. So that's that sort of asset reality's role. There's no point in finding all this crypto if you don't know how to manage it and realize it in a responsible way that isn't going to get you in trouble. And I think that when you look at the pace at which they can do the analytics every time we see on Twitter, or there's been a Twitter hack, and all of a sudden, like all the sleuths are on going, here's what's happened. Here's the analytics. We've tracked and traced it. Like that's done in minutes and hours. So even if you don't find the assets, you've got the evidence to arrest someone to charge someone, to freeze their assets, to trigger formal activity. So I think what's really positive for sort of like the rule of law as well is all of these cases set precedents. So the next time something like this happens, there's learnings from it. I'm sure there's things that every organization would always do differently with hindsight in any, in any case. So that for me is where we are getting to this position where very quickly mainstream adoption will accelerate if we start wiping out bad actors, I personally think it's a really necessary thing. I like the Wild West moniker. A lot of people don't like Wild West with crypto. I like it because it's pioneering, innovative, but brutal. You know, you break your leg in the Wild West, you're not getting sort of keyhole surgery and you no know, holistic therapy. But likewise, there's opportunities to innovate. There's opportunities to fix things. And every time someone does something well, people immediately build off the back of it. So I think we're going to see this increased arc where we're going to see more asset recovery activity, we're going to see more bad actors flushed out. And most importantly, as we're already seeing, like across the um, IRS criminal investigation, to give you an example, they've recovered billions of dollars in you know, seized digital assets. 93% of their seizures last year were digital assets. They have recovered more in digital assets than the entire United States law enforcement effort collectively in non-digital assets. And this is happening around the world. Metropolitan Police in London single Bitcoin seizure was worth more than the entire country's efforts in non-digital assets. So we give this example, but it's like we're finding oil for the first time, or we're finding gold in the hills, whatever the analogy we want to use. So there's a really interesting opportunity that we can then get that money back into law enforcement, back into investigation capabilities, get more people trained, get more people using the analytic tools, and then get more people seizing assets. So we see ourselves as a key component of that sort of virtuous cycle of asset recovery. And remember, SBF isn't a crypto case. It's a fraud case with a range of assets. But the crypto has created an immutable record of wrongdoing that will be a key part of the evidence in that case. And then you've got real estate. You've got cars. You've got boats. You've got people. It's a regular asset recovery and asset forfeiture case. It just has a large digital asset element to it. It's it's such a fascinating world that that you live in, you know, and it's also such a global world. And I think that's something that's, um, you know, we we both have spent a lot of time, whether it's working at the UN or working across the world in different public and private um, sector areas. But as you kind of zoom out and look at the world writ large, you know, places like Latin America that have high levels of crypto adoption, 
maybe um, historically more volatile um, economic climates sometimes that have led to hyperinflation, leading people to um, fi find safe harbors of assets that maybe don't have that hyperinflation. So yep. a lot of the early Bitcoin adoption was out of places like um, Venezuela. Some of the earliest um, founders of Ribbit Capital, for example, one of the founders, um, Venezuelan immigrant who was early in the crypto market. So interestingly, you have these kind of leading indicators or sometimes it is emerging markets that are the early adopters of of digital assets. Um, so as you kind of look at the world writ large, whether it's sanctions around Russia, whether it's looking at uh, different markets in LATAM, are there parts of the world that look um, more interesting you, to you or you have deeper engagements with or you uh, kind of see as flashpoints uh, in the future? Yeah, it is. Like you said, it's this sort of like this global marketplace. There truly is no border to to the work that, that we do. And one of our biggest challenges is like, where do you go? Like, where do you go next? Where what markets and do you target? And again, it's a tragedy that we even exist. Like in a perfect world, it's like, you know, it's like hospitals and, and and sort of and medical treatment. We're just a necessary and a necessary sort of uh, a necessary function that has to exist ultimately. But when we look at like you say, you're spot on. Like where you have places that have hyperinflation, where people have restricted access to their bank accounts. Now you could be in in Lebanon, for example. Go to the ATM, can't get cash out. You you see this. So there's there's a more sort of willing society that will accept. Uh, a different way. I think when you speak to someone in the US and the UK, they're kind of like, no. in some cases, they're like, I, there's still people that still think crypto is a scam and crypto is not going to be a thing and they'll never they'll never adopt it and we'll never be using it. And these are the same people that said, I'll never use contactless payments five years ago. And these are the people that said, I'll never use a mobile phone 10 years ago. And I think that when you have the ability to sort of, to work sort of globally and you realize that like mobile payments in Africa and Latin America, I mean, it's just common. Like you no know, Venmo, like, what we think is like a Venmo in the United States. They've been doing this with like mobile phones, like on like Nokia thirty three tens, like ten years ago. When you go to Egypt and you want to transfer someone money, you want to pay for something. It's mobile pay through Vodafone. So we're seen in those countries, but it would be wrong of us to think that that's where the activity is going to take place because that's where, for example, and in, in where we see the exploitation at an asset recovery and money laundering level. Like, be absolutely clear. The invention of the perception of offshore money laundering is a whitewashing from like the UK and US historically. Two biggest money launderers in the world are the UK and the US. Be absolutely clear about that. Like Delaware, London, like no, we do it better than anybody. And I think that we sort of poke at, the, at these smaller jurisdictions and we sort of, you know, we pick on the Caymans, the BVIs, the Seychelles, and all these people with all these companies set up. And you're going, it's your companies that are set up there. It's no, it, it, it was enabled by a formation agent in London probably. They, the, the tax advice and the lawyer who defends them is in those jurisdictions. Right. So when we actually get involved in a case like an FBI, that they're a good example. They're, when you look at it on a heat map, there's just all these touch points around the world that a fraud is committed to a customer. You, you could have, again, I keep going back to like a digital asset theft. You could have someone sitting in, in Manhattan who has their, you know, their wallet emptied as a victim of some sort of scam. And the actual, like the perpetrator of that uh, it could be an individual that's sitting somewhere, anywhere in the world, uh, or it could be a new scam. There's a pig between scam in Cambodia, and the corporate entity that they're actually operating under is registered in uh, Delaware or in the BVI, and all of a sudden, like the whole asset recovery trail just becomes incredibly convoluted, incredibly complex because there's different courts at play. But I think for us, where we're seeing those countries that have that greater mainstream adoption push toward towards CBDCs. It'll all just get very invisible very, very quickly in a good way. 
I think with crypto sort of suffered this like public autopsy. I mean, everyone uses WhatsApp and Signal and email and not no ninety percent of people wouldn't have a clue on what how the encryption methodology works in the background when you send a WhatsApp or a signal message. You'd all of a sudden everyone wants to know about how does blockchain work. And like we purposely when we give our presentations, the government saying like stop obsessing about how it works. You don't need to know that. When when you're putting in a court application to seize crypto, you don't need to tell the judge about Satoshi Nakamoto. You don't need to tell them. If you were seizing a car, you wouldn't talk about the internal combustion engine and Henry Ford and the Model T. Just seize the bloody car. But I think trying to simplify a complex topic is, a, is an art form. And I think that literally it's where the name asset reality comes from is trying to keep things sort of realistic and manage expectations and be clear in, in our language. But mainstream adoption for me is fundamentally inherently linked to feeling safer. If we can build the infrastructure, that means victims can get their assets back because law enforcement are enabled. That will be the biggest trigger. If people use the internet and shop online and use credit cards because if it goes wrong, Visa chargeback, identity theft protection, antivirus software. I use the analogy of it's like cars first being invented. But no seatbelts, no airbags, no anti-lock brakes, no, no no speed limits, no anything. Sort of scary, dangerous world. Once those safety measures started to come in, more and more people started to do it, bar those early pioneers. So I think we're still so early in the arc that once the safety becomes invisible and people just start using it, not even realizing that this is you know, underpinned by some digital asset, it'll just become more effortless. But right now we're in those early pioneering days where everyone sees, sees how, uh, see how we're, we're all seeing sort of behind the curtain, so to speak. And, and do you see a world where, you know, I've, I've unfortunately been the victim uh, of, of certain uh, threat thefts myself, where, you know, you have a, a centralized group to go back to where, whether it's the FDIC insuring against fraudulent charge or something like that, in a world of decentralized cryptocurrency where maybe there isn't uh, an FTX or there isn't an intermediary, are there ways in which you think there could be greater protective measures or insurance to protect consumers? Yeah, I think that for me, my, my personal bet is, is always going to be around sort of the DeFi. I think sort of, you know, I think CFI is just TradFi, you know, version 2.0. Um, I love the technology. I love the underlying technology, but if you put it back in the hands of individuals, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an anti-corruption lecturer. I, I, I'm sometimes a pessimist on sort of human behavior and people getting things wrong with other people's billions. Uh, that'll always happen. So I think with DeFi, I think the, the, the difficult message has to be around accountability as well. Like it's really tragic the amount of cases that we see firsthand that there were so many red flags. Now, Aiden, Aiden at as, Aiden.assetreality at gmail.com is not going to email you and ask you for your seed word. And if you give it to him. And so I think there's that element of public safety. If you want to, if you want to operate in DeFi, it's just like buying modern art. You need to know what you're doing. So I think that a lot of people could avoid a lot of the pitfalls, but there's also some people that are you know, curated and they're fished and they're really they're unavoidable, unavoidable losses. So what I think that the technology will enable, and we're seeing lots of great initiatives, this aggregating of data of bad actors. So at least then you should be able to have, and um, there, there's a number of sort of startups, so I'll not call it because I don't want to prefer one over the other, but there's some incredible initiatives of you know, proactive screening of your own addresses. So like the like the take five for fraud campaign we have in the UK. So if I try and set up a bank transfer and I try and send Scott money, it'll say, this isn't Scott. This is a corporation. Are you sure the account number and sword code? This is actually an overseas entity. No, double check. 
So if I'm doing a transfer from my, you know, my software wallet outbound, we have we've seen so much work around like smart contract auditing and all of these flags for this is a known scam. Why not just have like an aggregate of before you send it, this was reported three minutes ago, don't send it. That's where we think we can potentially evolve to with the types of data set that we're going to gather. Um, now, will that be done in collaboration? I fully suspect that that'll be a sort of whole world approach. I think that's as a coming together of exchanges, the blockchain analytic companies, all of the big data companies coming together and the existing data companies, not just the blockchain ones. So I think there's a really positive future that you could really tighten the net and drive a lot of the fraud back to the traditional fraud. Like it is, it seems nuts that in this particular sector, the most traceable asset on earth, like fraudsters shouldn't be using Bitcoin. It's 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 insane that they do, but they do it because everybody isn't looking. Like drug dealers smuggle through the airports that don't have good controls. So it's because there's still lots of gaps around the world that they don't have analytic tools. They don't have it's just like a it's just like a customs port, not having sniffer dogs or X-ray machines. Wow. So uh, until we tighten the net there will still be criminals operating in this space. I think the level of illicit activity is relatively low compared to traditional finance. And we keep hearing these stats about um, crypto fraud. It's still massively eclipsed by traditional fiat, like enormously eclipsed. We don't even know what the figure is. We can't even hazard a guess. It's just like the UN put it at 3% of GDP, whatever that is. It's, a, it's something between like 800 billion and 2 trillion. <laughs> So, so I, I think that I think it's not as bad as we. I don't think the outlook's as bad as we think. I'm very optimistic and positive on all of the work that can be done within the infrastructure can make the the whole sort of system much safer, much much safer than than fiat. And as you mentioned, I mean, uh, just a probably a, a piece of art onto a private jet into a new market uh, is you know far far harder to trace in many ways. But, 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 but my, my, my 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 quick sort of takeaway that I always mention to people, I mean, everyone forgets that the Paul Newman Rolex Daytona set a record uh, at auction for, I think, all together with buyer's premium, it was $21 million. So I can walk through an airport with a stainless steel Rolex, $21 million. You no, know, I'm there's like, like money laundering and assets is always going to be a major issue that governments are going to find impossible to tackle at scale. But with digital assets, that footprint, that inherent footprint, use of mixers, like all of those things, all of those breadcrumbs are there that you can pick up and prosecute and, and go after. So yeah, I think the outlook's positive in terms of from a digital asset perspective. And so other than your forthcoming TED Talk, which uh, may be coming to a, a screen near you, um, <laughs> where, where can where can listeners find you and get in touch? I, uh, I, I, do, I do love LinkedIn. For, for me, LinkedIn is a wonderful network and just a great resource before you do anything. Like someone out there will probably have done it before and share that. So, uh, and I'd, again, like, more, than happy, uh, more than happy to share our experience and share our story. Asset Reality has actually developed some free, uh, from free training as well for individuals and people, little sort of short courses and bite-sized courses to share our learnings for certain victims of scams. So again, they can, they can come to the website and then um, we'll, be, we'll be sort of building that out over the, the sort of coming months to give people that ability to try and stay a little bit safer. Because again, my, my point I made earlier, one of the greatest tragedies in all of this is the amount of avoidable um, cases. We want to be dealing with the big complex cases and problems that other people can't solve. We don't want it to see people that you know, have entirely avoidable circumstances sort of you know, uh, sort of coming to us in desperation. So that would be our, our hope in the future is that we could sort of try and um, sort of share our learnings and sort of you know, stop people being victims in the first place. It's an incredible uh, conversation. One of my favorite uh, companies and, and, and people to chat with. Um, Aiden, 
You okay. say that to everybody, I'm sure. I'm, uh, <laughs> from As a Reality, uh, calling from Jamaica, um, where you're helping work more uh, more digital crimes and, and, and help people recover their assets. So thanks so much for being with us today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn about Everywhere. We're a first check pre-seed fund that does exactly that. We invest everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.